Father, thank you for your word. As we engage with it now, please open our eyes to see what you want us to see, to hear your voice and to uh, trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the challenges of uh, reading the Bible, particularly the Old Testament and particularly the narratives of the Old Testament, is trying to work out whether God is providing the characters there as a model for us to live by. Are they someone we should be following their example? And if so, in what way? Is it some of the ways? Is it all the ways? Is it none of the ways? And are we supposed to read what happens to them and and take that as a direct blueprint for us to copy and, and expect the same kind of results that they have? Is God telling us to do what they do or not and model ourselves on them or not? And in some ways, it would make Bible reading a whole lot easier and simpler, wouldn't it, if God was just expecting us to do exactly what the characters in the Bible did. And certainly there are many people who are held up as examples for us in the Bible to follow. And certainly there are countless other people now who are trying to take very specific things that people did and apply them to us and say, well, that should be what we do now as if that is what God's saying to us. But I think, think we instinctively know that we can't just do that because it'd leave us in some pretty weird and pretty scary places sometimes. I mean, just think back to the, the events of the life of Abraham. He has a vision of God and is asked to sacrifice his son with a knife on an altar. Uh, and uh, he loads up Isaac, he rides off into the hills with a whole bunch of wood and a machete. Does that mean that if we have a bad dream, a nightmare even, that we should start pulling out the carving knife? Imagine what would happen if we tried to apply today's passage in that kind of way, just copy these Old Testament people. Then I take it this would be the go-to chapter on how to find a wife or perhaps a husband as well. Uh, celebrated as one of the great love stories of the Bible. Uh, it's certainly one of the longest love stories of the Old Testament. And for sure, it does have a very, very happy ending. And I imagine there are plenty of people on a first date who might pray something like verse 12 here, O Lord, God of my father Abraham, please grant me success today. But maybe that's a prayer that you've uttered or something to that effect in the past. And maybe even you prayed that and had a happy ending as well. But is it how we should go about dating? Is it, you know, should we go and set up complicated tests to know if this person is God's will for me, if he or she really is the one that God has in mind? In fact, you know, should you go on your first date, uh, actually not go on your first date, but have your father's servant go in your place? Is that the way that Christian dating should work? Uh, maybe camels are the key to success in God's plan. And if you haven't got what you want, it's because you didn't have enough camels. Um, uh, that's why maybe dating so challenging in Sydney these days, because there's not many of them around. Northern Territory might be a different story, but Sydney... Uh, there's a bit of an absence of camels. Uh, although I did discover online uh, that uh, there is uh, the Bentley restaurant and bar in Sydney and it does a dessert of plums uh, served with camel milk curd, if that's any guidance from God. But God doesn't give us the stories of the Old Testament just to imitate the people exactly and guarantee that we'll get exactly the same outcomes. What happens to Isaac and Rebekah 
isn't necessarily supposed to be true of us. In fact, it may not even be true of us that everyone hearing this who wants to be married and to have children uh, is going to find that person and everything is going to work out. And I know that can be very, very painful. It's a very, very difficult issue. But God isn't promising that through this passage today. Because while they might make great stories, these these things from the Old Testament, uh, and, and I take it this is why people shy away from the Old Testament a bit, uh, while they make great stories and adventures to tell Sunday school kids, it's challenging to know exactly what to do with some of them, especially if, if you go into the Bible just looking for a, a quick thought for the day or just that, that thing that God's telling me to do. That, that's not necessarily what we should expect when we read some of the narratives. Because while there are many elements of the lives of the people of God to copy, God's given these parts of history for so much more than that. Uh, In fact, they're primarily here to teach us about God, about what he is like, about his interactions with the world, and and about how we're to respond to him with not necessarily the particular actions to do in each case. Now, today we're coming back to Genesis after about a three-year break. Back in 2018, we worked through the first half of the book and we particularly focused on the life of Abraham. And if there was something to copy from Abraham's example, it's to trust God in the way that Abraham does, to take God at his word and obey it. Again and again in the New Testament, Abraham's held up as an example of faith. He's Romans 4, Galatians 3, and even that wonderful chapter we looked at a few weeks ago, Hebrews 11, uh, most of the details of Abraham's life are, are, are talked about and held up as an example of his faith in difficult circumstances and how he trusted God and how he was looking further ahead. And, uh, and by faith he went here and he went there. And... But even then, Genesis is not really about Abraham. Even though he's a major character who goes on for chapters and chapters, it's a book about God and about his interactions with the world that he made. And even more particularly, it's about the hatching of God's plan to undo the horrifying curse that the world is under, which he put on us because of humanity's evil, which which springs out of hearts that, that want to take God's place, that that spit in his face, that believe the lies of Satan and think that there's going to be no consequence and that we should be the ones to determine right and wrong. And it's an absolute disaster. And so the first 11 chapters of Genesis really describe the downfall of humanity and the horrors that you find in a godless world. The arrogance, the violence, the family disintegration and hatred, the way that humans unite together against God, but then also the way they divide against each other, all stemming from the evil in their hearts. And we also learn about, in the the middle of those 11 chapters, God's anger and his hatred towards that evil and the fury of his wrath and how bad they can be as he brings the floods and and he breaks down humanity's greatest engineering achievements and, and he scatters us and divides us so that we cannot unite again in defiance of him. And it all looks very, very grim and dark until along comes chapter 12, when for no apparent reason, out of the blue, God 
singles out one man and makes incredible promises, mind-blowing, astonishing promises. That man is Abraham. He was Abram at the time, and, and he's no one special. There's nothing remarkable about him. But God calls to him and says, Abram, go from your homeland, leave your family, leave your nation, leave your father's house, leave it all behind and go hundreds of miles to the land that I will show you. And he does. And, and he makes a promise along with it. He says, I will make you, Abram, into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Indeed, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And through you, Abram, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. And so he's making promises of land, of descendants, of fame. And, and then through those things, blessings to the nations of the world. And as the story unfolds, we get to see the faithfulness of God to those promises, even in some uh, incredibly impossible even seeming situations, even despite Abram's own flaws and failings, some of which are huge. I mean, he's a liar, he's scared of the powers and he, all kinds of ways that he's not a model to follow. Um, but God has been fulfilling his promises to this man and through him, to, well, to the rest of the world. But when we left off in chapter 23, a couple of years ago, Abram was a very, very old man who had just lost his wife. He'd lost the love of his life, Sarah. And, and he's also coming to the end of his life, which we'll see in chapter 25 next week. And so the question that comes up is, was God's goodness to him just for his life only. Many good things have happened. He's become established. He's become a father. He had his son Isaac just as he turned 100 and his wife was 90 at the time. It was a miracle. He's been living in the land of Canaan uh, that he was promised and, and he's described in chapter 23 by one of the residents of Canaan as a prince of God among us. But is that the end of the line? Is it the end of the story? Is the fruit of God simply that you can enjoy some blessings and peace and prosperity in your own lifetime? And, and what about God's plan to bring blessings to the world and to the nations of the world through him? And, and that's the issue here in our passage today because chapters 22, sorry, 23 to 25 Act as kind of like a sandwich with the, the two bits of bread and the filling in between. Uh, in chapter 23, Sarah dies. In chapter 25, Abraham dies. And chapter 24 is the filling. It's the meat in the sandwich. Uh, and it's kind of a succession story in the middle there because the promises that God made to Abraham, he didn't make to Abraham alone. They were to Abraham and his offspring. And more than that, as we'll see over the next few weeks, they are promises that form the backbone of history. As from one generation to the next to the next, God keeps his promises. But right here at the end of his life, this is the first generation where there's been this promise. The question is hanging, will the promises die with Abraham? 
Or will the line through whom God has made these incredible promises to bless the nations continue? Because as it stands, well, he's got a son, but he's, he's getting on and he's single. <laughs> well, that's the framework. Uh, so let's get into the story. And, and once again, we're shown two things. We're going to see repeated right through two things. Uh, we're going to see that God's people trust God. That's, that's what they do. Uh, but secondly, they trust God because God can be trusted. God is faithful. That's, that's the thing we're learning about God. And so first of all, let's have a look. God's people trust in him. Abraham trusts God. He's, he's trusted him for many years now, and he even trusts God now as his wife Sarah is buried at the end of chapter 23 because he wants her to be buried where? He wants her buried in the promised land. Uh, 23 verse 19, after this, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave of the field of Machpelah near Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Now, I'm not going to go over the detail. We, we covered that as the last talk we did way, way back in, I think it was January 2019. You can go back on our website and have a look at the, uh, listen to the old sermons. But suffice to say that Abraham had gone to some considerable amount of trouble and effort to secure a burial place within the promised land. And he's not even prepared to take the generous offer of uh, a burial place from the Hittites for free. He wants to buy the plot of land so that he possesses it. So in some way, at least this tiny part of the land of Canaan, just a, a six foot by six foot grave, well, it's a cave, uh, is the thing he owns. He owns a little piece of the promised land, the promised land that God had promised him. This is the only bit he ends up owning, in fact. Right? The only thing that the whole clan end up with is just his cave. And his family, the nation of Israel, they're not going to possess the whole lot of Canaan for another 500 years or so in the time of Joshua. But Abraham looks forward beyond his death to promises that are yet to be fulfilled. And in fact, he describes himself as someone who is still waiting. Here I am, a prosperous old man that God's been kind to, but I'm still waiting. You see that in verse 4 of chapter 23. I am an alien resident amongst you people. I'm a foreigner and only a temporary resident. Now, now for the astute um, with particularly good memories... That's a phrase that Hebrews 11 picked up. Hebrews 11 verse 13 says this, These people all died in faith, although they had not received the things they were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Genesis 23 is where he gets that from, that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. But Hebrews goes on to say, in verse 14, uh, now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they had come from, they would have had opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place. And get this, a heavenly one. And so in, in doing what he did in buying the plot of land and burying his wife there, Abraham's looking for beyond his death, not just 
to the physical land of Canaan, which God has promised will come to him and his family, but also to the ultimate fulfillment of being gathered to God in heaven, which which is what the promised land points towards. So now she's gone. He looks at his son and he thinks, we better find him a wife if God's promises are going to be fulfilled. Now, of course, finding wives and having children has been a theme that's dominated the book of Genesis up to now and is going to be right there, right through the scriptures. Uh, But Abraham was promised that he would have children and, and that was a long, long time in coming. If you recall, Sarah was 90 years old when she fell pregnant by a miracle and and everyone was so surprised, they all had a good laugh about it. <laughs> they thought it was absurd. And, and that's what they named their son. Isaac means laughter or joke. And so joke needs a wife. Isaac needs a wife. And so the promises can continue. Now, bear in mind, this is all in the days of arranged marriages. And so it's up to Abraham to figure the problem out. And part of his trust in God is seen in how very specific he is about this woman or who this woman could be and about where his son Isaac is to live with her. They're the two most important considerations for Abraham in finding a wife for his son, who she can be and where they are to live. Actually, we get it four times throughout chapter 24 because we get the whole story twice and it's mentioned twice in each of the tellings. We hear the first two times when Abraham's telling his servant uh, the, the, the rules, here's the restrictions that I'm putting upon you and I just want you to hear and so I repeat them. And then the servant tells the same thing twice to Laban. Abraham is very, very specific. He's specific about who the woman must be. You have a look at 24 verse 3. He says to the servant, I'll have you swear by the Lord God of heaven and God of earth, so it's serious stuff, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family to take a wife for my son Isaac. Now bear in mind, where is that? Hundreds of kilometers away and with no cars, right? This is going to be a, this is going to be a journey, right? That's going to take months. She can't be a Canaanite. Why? What's wrong with them? Well, because right back from before even Abraham's time, God had declared the Canaanites off limit. He put them under their own special curse uh, after the flood. And and maybe this uh, distinction that you're, there's people you are not available almost foreshadows the specific commands of God later on for Christian people to follow to only marry other Christians that believers are not to marry unbelievers. But but maybe that's reading too much into it. That's a foreshadowing, but it's certainly something that's very very important and very explicit later on in the scriptures. But it's more than that because. There's lots of other places that you could go and meet someone who's not a Canaanite. You could go down to Egypt. You could go into Africa. You could go up north into Syria. But but this wife has to come from his own clan because God's promises have been to me and my people and this guarantees that it stays that way. 
And you can all tell it all stems from his faith in God because he calls upon God to witness the oath that the servant has to make to him. But if it's challenging enough that Abraham has to, uh, sorry, challenging enough that the, the woman has to be from a country hundreds of miles away that, that Abraham left decades ago, and not just from any family there, but from his own relatives, he adds the extra level of difficulty to the equation, namely that Isaac isn't allowed to go back there to find a wife. He's not allowed to go with the servant. Now, that's difficult, isn't it? Uh, let's say Alice and I wanted Amelia to marry someone only from the south of France. Uh, but I add the extra stipulation that she's never allowed to travel outside of New South Wales. Right? How is she ever going to... It's going to be quite tricky. It's quite difficult. And he's absolutely emphatic about it, isn't he? In verse 6, Abraham answered him, make sure that you don't take my son back there. And then again in verse 8, if the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you're free from this oath to me, but don't let my son go back there. Now, why is that? Because Abraham remembers God's promises. God's promises are for him to have and live in the land of Canaan. That's where he currently is after the very long journey he made years ago. And he doesn't want his son to go back to Mesopotamia lest he stays there and makes his new life there and forgets the purposes of God to the family and his offspring. And so Abraham, because Abraham is so keen that his son after him sticks with God's plan, he puts in the, his path this massive obstacle. Find, find a wife from my own country, but don't let the boy go there to get one. And he's saying it because he trusts in God. In fact, he might even say that he would sooner that his son didn't marry at all um, than break the promises of God. If she won't come with you, then you're released from your oath, but don't let my son go back there. Interesting, isn't it, that uh, what we want for our children can be a test of our own attitude towards God and his promises. What, what is it you're praying for your children? What is it you want for them? Uh, most people would say, well, I want my children to be happy. Well, happy is good, but, but there's more important things than that, right? In good standing with God is the most important thing. And Abraham trusts God and he puts this obstacle in the way. But then the servant, he's here and, and he also trusts God and, and he puts a seemingly even bigger obstacle in the way. Right? If it's not hard enough already, that you know, it's hundreds of miles away from a very specific clan and uh, that the boy's not allowed to go, well, uh, he goes to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor, Abraham's brother, and he decides to set up his own test. Uh, and it's a bit like a Gideon fleece. Uh, and the test is, well, as I sit by this well and the young women come out to draw water to drink, uh, I'm going to ask one of them for a drink. And uh, and the test is, if they say, of course, I'll get you a drink, then if they add, why don't I also get a drink for your camels too? Well, I'll know she's the one. <laughs> now, that's going to be hard work. That's not a simple thing. That's, there's a big hurdle there. Uh, we're told that he's got 10 camels with him, uh, and camels 
they drink a lot of water. Uh, they've got big tanks on their back. That, that's what those humps are for. Uh, that's where they store the water. So, so it's got to be a young lady who's not only very, very kind to a complete stranger sitting there with a herd around him, but uh, she's going to have uh, to do a lot of toing and froing if she's going to care for his flock as well. Um, is, is he wanting an animal-loving wife for his master's son? Is that it? Maybe that's the test. Is he wanting a, a hard-working wife? For his master's son that he puts his obstacle in the way? Is he, is he wanting someone who's just very kind and hospitable and will put herself out for other people? Maybe. But actually, the real thing that he wants is that he wants to find a wife for Isaac that God will provide. You can see that in verse 14. He says, Let the girl to whom I say, Please lower your water jug so that I may drink, and who responds, Drink and I'll water your camels also. Let he her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Right? He's not trying to make his job easier. He's trying to discern the one that God has in mind. This isn't something that's being set forward as something for us to copy, laying down fleeces, doing tests. You know, I'll... If I ask a girl if, if she'd like a drink and if she responds, I'll have a Coke with Bacardi, um, then I'll know that she's the one God's got planned for me. It's not like that. We're not being encouraged to copy this exactly. But we are here to learn that this is someone, in the servant, is someone who trusts that God will be involved in the decision. He's uh, someone who trusts that God's going to intervene and that God will be the one who provides for this. And it's going to have to be God's provision because it's just so specific. Just as he was the one who provided a son for Abraham against all human possibility. So God will provide a wife from Isaac's country, uh, not even uh, uh, going, uh, not even, all right, sorry, and, and she's going to, be a distant relative and she's going to say exactly the right thing at just the right moment when asked for a drink of water. And so both Abraham and his servant implicitly and explicitly trust God. And the reason they do that and the lesson the author wants us to learn is that it's very sensible to trust God because God can be trusted. God can be trusted. God provides exactly what Isaac needs. It's a lovely story, isn't it? He hasn't even said amen at the end of his prayer and along comes a woman who's pretty good news. Uh, verse 15, before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now, now the servant doesn't even know who this is yet. He's going to find that out later. But but we're being let in on this, the fact that, that she's going to tick all of the boxes, right? She's not just from this place, but she's from Abraham's own clan. She's a distant relative, um, a grandniece or something. And, and then there's a bonus in verse 16. She's very attractive, and I bet he's thinking, excellent, tick that one too. Uh, better again, she's a virgin who's had no man uh, been intimate with anyone, so she's single, tick. So things are shaping up nicely, but what's going to happen when he asks, 
for a drink from the well. So he launches the test in verse 17, and the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me have a little water from your jug. She replied, Drink, my lord. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels too. And then we can all breathe a sigh of relief as she's passed this extraordinary test. And we know for certain that the Lord is the one who has done this, who has prospered the journey. And I think that's the point we're meant to take home. It's about the God who can be trusted. And he provides the wife for Isaac. Not that God is going to guarantee you or me the fulfillment of every one of our desires that we might have. Not, not even some of the most profound and intimate desires that we might have around very personal areas of relationships and children, which, which I know is a source of grief to, to some who are listening to this today. And uh, we all want to share great care for our brothers and sisters who are going through that kind of distress and, and disappointment and whatever's happening. But, but this is a guarantee of something. It's the guarantee that God is going to fulfill his word. And, and he's going to fulfill his word to you if you are his. And the, his word that he is with you, his word that he is for you, his word that you're forgiven of your sins, his word that you, you belong and uh, you've been paid for and, and you've been bought for because God promised Abraham and he is part of the fulfillment of that promise. You remember what he promised Abraham right back in chapter 12. He said, I will bless you and I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. Indeed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. You can look back over all the chapters in between and say, well, actually, God's been doing that. He had a son that he was promised against all the others when he was 100 years old. Uh, He's living in the land that he was promised against all the odds protected from various other kings and threats, and there have been enormous ones uh, in the midst of it all. In fact, the, the superpower is invaded in that time. If you remember back in chapter 14 and carried off family and possessions and, and he got them back, and, and he's even prospered in his old age in a foreign land as a nomad, even if he owns just one little cave. And yet it hasn't finished because Abraham begat Isaac, and the Lord blessed Isaac. And so now begins the story of Isaac and his children and his children's children, which we're looking at over the rest of this term, and we'll see that Isaac had a son, Jacob, and God blessed Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and each of them will receive a particular blessing from God. And 400 years later, through the family, God blessed Moses. But the family tree won't end there. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat, 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 begat Jesus Christ. And even then, the promises don't finish there 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem when Jesus was born because he promises us Jesus promises us by faith in him, by trusting him as Abraham trusted God 
through his death and his resurrection, that we too can be children of Abraham, adopted into the family and receivers of the blessings of God, such that we will be gathered around the throne of God as a great multitude, more numerous than the stars of the sky. That's not so impressive a number when you're in the smog of Sydney in lockdown and you can't get out, but uh, you go out into the country, you see that, that that's a big number, right? Uh, after December 1st, you'll be able to travel and you'll be able to see it all, have a look up. More numerous than, than the dust of the earth. I don't know if you've ever opened up your vacuum cleaner and, and looked in there and tried to count the dust particles, right? You couldn't even do that. Um, more numerous than the grain, grains of sand on the beach. Even if it was Simo's beach, that would be an impossible number to count. All gathered around the throne of Jesus in a perfect new world, in, in the promised land, a heavenly country, one that Abraham himself was looking forward to as an alien and foreigner on this earth. Trust God. Trust him because he can be trusted. Right? Have faith in God. Why? Because God is faithful and particularly he's faithful to the promises that he made to this man, Abraham, and of whom we are the recipients and beneficiaries because of his great mercy and grace. Let's pray. We want to thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to your promises that we can read that in the summary of Abraham's life, that you have blessed him in everything. But we want to thank you that your promises don't end with Abraham, but they throw, flow through to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and they even flow through him um, to, to us because he has died and risen, he has paid for our sins. And we pray that you would help us should the Lord Jesus delay his return, to live by faith, to consider ourselves aliens and strangers here on this earth and that this is not our true home and even to die in faith looking forward to that day when you fulfil every promise that you've made and gather us home. Father, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters who struggle with the pain of singleness and the disappointment and grief over that or childlessness. And we pray that you might help us to love uh, others around us in their grief, whatever that grief might happen to, to look like and take. Help us not to be um, irritating or uh, problematic, but to know how to, how to care for each other. All of us care for each other. Father, we pray that you would help us to love you as we seek to shape our lives around your promises, to be obedient to you, uh, to not go outside of where your word allows but help us to, to honour you in everything to do as we live by faith in you, the one who is trustworthy. Amen.